Welcome to Gov Innovator. I'm Andy Feldman. Patrick McCarthy is with us today. He's the president of the Annie Casey Foundation. Our focus today is his call for states to close their youth prisons. Here's a clip. I think where we really began to get off the rails uh, was in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, where there was uh, a num- there were a number of studies looking at uh, interventions for young people and concluding that nothing works to turn a young person's uh, life around uh, if they were a juvenile delinquent. Uh, we now know with uh, better interventions and most importantly better research that in fact there are a number of interventions that are much more effective. In its reports, the Annie Casey Foundation has documented widespread maltreatment of youth in state-funded juvenile corrections facilities, including high rates of sexual victimization and the heavy-handed use of disciplinary isolation. The results include high levels of recidivism and annual costs that often exceed $100,000 per young person. The findings have led the Foundation's president, Patrick McCarthy, to call on states to close their youth prisons and to use more evidence-based approaches that would be more effective, humane, and cost-efficient. He's also pledged the Foundation's support to any state that's willing to close its youth prisons. To learn more, we're joined by Patrick McCarthy, who has led the Casey Foundation since 2010 and has been at the Foundation since 1994. Prior to that, he held a range of leadership positions focused on youth and families, including division director within Delaware's Human Services Agency. Patrick, welcome. Thank you, Andy. I'm pleased to be here. I mentioned some of the challenges, but give us an overview in your own words about the problem with youth prisons in the U.S. today. We think that everyone wants the juvenile justice system to do one basic thing. They want young people who were touched by that system to come out better off than when they went in, more likely to be on track towards success, and very importantly, less likely to commit crime. The current approach to youth prisons in this country, these large adult-like correctional facilities, doesn't do any of that. In fact, the young people who go through those systems have a worse educational outcomes, employment outcomes, mental health, more likely to get involved in substance abuse, more likely to commit crime rather than less, and more likely to be reincarcerated. And not only that, we lead the world in locking up our young people. Our rate of incarceration of young people is more than twice as high as the next highest country. And our recidivism rates vary from 50 to 60 to 70, 80 percent, depending on the state. So we know that these are young people who are being driven further off the path to uh, to success. You've noted the history of juvenile corrections facilities started out many years ago looking much different than they do today in many cases. Can you share with us that history before we get back to talking about the current situation? Well, this model goes all the way back to the 1840s when if you were seen to be an incorrigible young person and not listening to what your parents have to say, uh, often children of immigrants, etc., would be put in these large institutions, uh, which were often called uh, training schools, the idea being that they would be provided vocational skills, they would uh, work within those facilities, etc. So that's where it all it all started. Over time, it's evolved uh, and become more and more the traditional correctional facility. So it sounds like evolved in not a good way. These facilities have become more and more like adult correctional facilities and more and more places where young people 
are experiencing serious maltreatment. What's the background on how we got to this point? I think where we really began to get off the rails uh, was in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, where there was uh, a num- there were a number of studies looking at uh, interventions for young people and concluding that nothing works to turn a young person's uh, life around uh, if they were a juvenile delinquent. Uh, we now know with uh, better interventions and most importantly better research that in fact there are a number of interventions that are much more effective. But that notion that nothing works was combined with the crack epidemic and with predictions that we were about to be beset by a horde of uh, uh, youthful predators who would uh, take over their communities and so we had to get tough on crime. Uh, the overall uh, drug wars that led to many, many more arrests of uh, young people, uh, zero tolerance in schools uh, for any kind of misbehavior, and the criminalization of what before that had been treated as a school disciplinary problem. So you put that all together, and in the 90s, our juvenile incarceration rate started to go uh, go through the roof. Uh, the bottom line about a lot of this, though, is that the average person doesn't see the young juvenile delinquent as uh, someone that is uh, one of his own kids. They can't imagine their own child in this situation. And of course, this his- this country's history with race comes into this. Um, most of the young people that people think about being locked up are African-American and Latino and Native American uh, children. Uh, And so there's a sense of distance uh, between these young people uh, and uh, the average citizen. You recommend a three-pronged approach that states should take to reform their juvenile correction system. Tell us how you came to those three approaches and what they are. Sure. They're based on a few basic ideas. One is that we are locking up lots and lots of young people who don't need to be there. We see very high percentages of the young people being locked up are there for nonviolent offenses and often for probation uh, violations. So that's something we take into account. We recognize that what we're doing now ignores everything we know about child and adolescent development, about brain science, trauma, and, and delinquency. One of the things that we ignore is that the reality is that many, many young people uh, commit delinquent acts. And in fact, as uh, young people uh, move into their 20s, they become less and less likely to commit those kinds of acts kind of all on their own. And then finally, we do have to recognize that there are some young people whose potential for violence or history of violence is such that they do need to spend a period of time in a locked facility. We are proposing that these large institutions need to be replaced, that we do need some uh, facilities that uh, are are, are locked. So you keep all those in mind and the three-pronged approach is straightforward. One is to reduce the pipeline into youth prisons by half by uh, not locking up the kids who don't need to be there. Uh, Second, We need to reform the existing programs and uh, systems by dramatically expanding community-based and family-centered programs that have evidence that they work with young people who do have serious uh, problems. And then finally, for those uh, small fraction of young people who do need secure confinement, we need to replace these large adult-like brutal facilities with much smaller facilities that focus on treatment and that rely on intense relationships with um, with caring adults. 
Tell us about states that are leading the way. What are some examples of progress at the state level? You know, that's really the good news uh, that we see, Andy. Um, on the reducing the pipeline, we've seen huge reductions in states from California to New York and Texas and Ohio and many others. So we know that there uh, is support for the idea that you shouldn't be locking as many young people young people up. Um, there are uh, more and more treatments available, uh, the multi-systemic therapy and functional family therapy and the organ treatment uh, model, et cetera, and others that are being implemented across the country uh, for young people who have serious problems uh, but who don't necessarily necessarily need to be uh, locked up. And then we're seeing uh, in a number of states efforts to close these large facilities. We've seen this in Louisiana, uh, in New York City, uh, New Mexico, Oregon. They're working on this in Virginia. There's conversation in, um, in Connecticut and Rhode Island and other places. So uh, we do actually see people taking up the call. You've offered the Casey Foundation support if states are willing to close their youth prisons. Tell us about how that support could help. Sure. We would build on our more than 25 years experience working at the front end of the system. When a child is first picked up for an accused of a delinquent act, um, he or she may be held in a detention center while they're waiting for their hearing. We've worked for the last 25 years on that part of the system. We've worked in 250 sites across 41 states, and we've seen a 43% decline in those sites uh, in our juvenile detention uh, alternative initiative. So we want to take what we learned in working with sites, with advocates, with um, other experts and researchers and other foundations and advocacy organizations. We want to take all that we've learned and all those partnerships and networks we have and tap into their uh, knowledge, their expertise, and their will to tackle, uh, tackle the deep end. So we're willing to work with states that are serious about taking this on, that are willing to do those three things I talked about earlier, to reduce the pipeline and reform the services and replace the, the youth prisons uh, by helping them build the public will to do that, to support their efforts uh, to articulate a more successful approach, to provide technical assistance, uh, etc. A final question for you, Patrick, which is that it appears after many years of advocates calling for criminal justice reform of the adult system, there is growing bipartisan commitment to reform. Your point, am I right, is that the juvenile system is not only critical to reform as well, but it also links to that adult system and the problems in that adult system. It absolutely does. I mean, these youth prisons are nothing more than a pipeline directly into the adult uh, criminal justice system. When you take uh, the real backgrounds of these young people, usually with a history of trauma and having already been failed by the education system and health system and um, uh, uh, housing systems, etc., these these are young folks who have been subjected to everything we know from the research that undermines their development. They've been exposed to violence and aggression and chaos. And then we put them in these uh, youth prisons, which essentially replicate the worst of what they've already experienced. We also give them a message that they are, uh, on the one hand, at the same time dangerous and feared, uh, but also that they're worthless and they have no, no real future. Once they internalize that message, then they are primed to graduate to the adult system. So at the end of the day, if... Uh, we really want to reform the adult criminal justice system. We really have to start by closing every last youth prison in the country. 
For our listeners, I'll put a link on the website to the Foundation's most recent report on this topic. Patrick, thanks for being with us. I appreciate it, Andy. Thank you very much.